I'm sure it comes to no one's surprise that Jordan is extremely busy right now. So like we did with Miss Love last year, we're going to have a special guest for this podcast and next podcast. It's a two-part series with Jordan's other good friend and co-collaborator, Ali. Uh, We talk about China. We talk about economics. We talk about social media, TikTok, of course. And then we talk about being brown, as you'd expect. So I hope you enjoy this very special uh, version of Neil and Jordan part one and part two of this podcast series with Ali. These will just be audio versions. So if you're watching on YouTube, you won't get to see our beautiful faces, unfortunately. But in two weeks, Jordan will be back. And I hope you enjoy this uh, special version. Thank you. I am joined today by Ali. If you don't know Ali, he is, uh, he co-hosts the what is it? is it just called the Friendly Geordies podcast? Yes. And for fans, the Friendly Jimmy's podcast. Friendly Jimmy's podcast. Where does that come from? Jimmy. That was just Miss Love being lazy and started calling Jordan Jimmy. Right. <laughs> but okay. It became a meme. Okay. Maybe come a bit closer to me. Yeah, but well, there we go. Nice. Perfect. This is a very, very intimate podcast. Yep. There we go. Uh, so Ali, how about you just tell everyone a little bit about yourself and how you even got to know Jordan? Yeah, dude, that's a funny story. Jordan was my first friend in the country. I moved to Australia when I was about to turn 18, I think. And uh, And how old are you now? I'm 29. Okay. So some time ago now. I think 2012 was when I moved here. And And where are you from originally? Pakistan. Put this, uh, see your beautiful face. There we go. Perfect. Um... Yeah, so I I grew up in Pakistan, and uh, I moved to Malaysia for like a year after that, and then straight to Australia. But ever since I was a child, I was told by my dad that you're going to go to Australia. I have a lot of family here, and we used to visit when we were kids. It was just something, I don't know, it was also like a thing of, uh, you're going to eventually leave this shit home, from my dad's perspective. So, um, yeah, and I moved here, didn't have any friends. And were you studying here? Yeah, I started uni here at UNSW. So I started uni, and uh, I, at the time, was a dirty commie, as they say. Okay. Like, I was part of the Socialist Equality Party. Um, And so when I moved to Australia, I just went to revolutionary activities, which was basically hanging out in Erskineville and watching, like... um, Iranian movies and saying how cool they are compared mm. to Hollywood. Living in the chair house. Yes. At the time, I was living at um, on campus. Okay. And I was, uh, my housemate was an actuarial PhD student from China. So he basically lived in his room. Wow. I feel like that was normal for an 18-year-old uni student to be a filthy commie. What would have been True. strange would have been to be a hardcore capitalist yeah i suppose that's true but i was i was like a proper one like i was i was going to like meetings and uh okay and planning a revolution didn't matter where i was when i was in pakistan i was doing it over there when i was in malaysia i was doing it there and when i moved to australia i was doing that and did that come from was there a catalyst for those ideas or yeah just sprung out it's well, I, I, funnily enough, my dad was one. He was a straight-up Maoist, like hardcore commie who was 
almost part of an armed struggle <laughs> against the state of Pakistan. Gosh. And then eventually got disillusioned by it and uh, became a banker. <laughs> okay. Funny story. So he totally switched sides. Wow, and if you meet really him today, did, yeah. he'll tell you how dumb communism is. Um, but funnily enough, I didn't know about any of that when I was growing up. He would fleetingly mention sometimes my days in politics. And I just assumed, I don't know, he would be like part of like our version of the Greens or some shit. Mm. And so never really questioned it because I wasn't super political. But um, so I independently found Marxism. And I was and I think when I was like probably 15 years old, I mentioned it to him that, hey, dad, do you know about this guy called Karl Marx? He's really cool. And when I was like, well, son, if you look at this entire corridor of the library, this is all Marxist stuff. And that's when I was like, wait, what do you mean? You're into it? I was like, yes, I used to be one of them. <laughs> um, anyway, so that, I suppose, reinforced some of my ideas. But uh, And so have you taken on the same path? Are you now a banker? I am not a banker, but okay. I am neither a filthy commie. Look, the thing is, if you go through that phase in life, particularly if you go so deep into it the way I had, there's going to be aspects of it that will stay with you forever. Like the of course, as 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 like um, as cliched as it sounds, but like you know the. Uh, you feel for the downtrodden because you've almost been trained to feel it. Absolutely. So it still informs your uh, politics, and my politics began with actually. Uh, the invasion of Iraq, mm. in two thousand and three. Because I was living in Pakistan, right next door to, basically next door. And, uh, and it really radicalized a lot of people at the time. So I remember being, I became politically aware of things around me then. And I think around 15, 16, I got a hold of like, um, initially Chomsky, which became our, my bonding with Jordan initially. Uh, and then like a whole host of other uh, radical uh, writers. And and so it came from like a very anti-imperialist mm. area. So obviously I was drifted towards communism because that's what it was talking about all the time. But it was it was fun, man. And I... Just real quickly, why do you think that is that to be anti-imperialistic or to just have a non-interventionist view um, or ideal for Western governments... Why do you think you have to be a, a communist as well? Well, I suppose you don't have to be a communist. You can be a nationalist of other countries. But what communism does is that it's a very expansive ideology. It doesn't really believe in nation states. Mm. It's a bit like Al-Qaeda in the sense that it doesn't believe in establishing communism in one particular area. It's very evangelical. So the idea of borders and nationalities don't matter to them as much. So imperialist powers, when they're taking over a country, they're usually doing it in whatever they perceive to be their national interest. And that's something that communism rejects, that it's not a national interest. It's actually the interest of the proletariat, which is the working classes all over the world. Mm. So it's more conducive to someone that wants to shit on the U.S. Of course. But you could be like, I don't know, you could be Chinese today and say that U.S. sucks. But then you would also have to say that China is amazing. Right, because it's you are still believing in the na nationalist paradigm of like my country is better than your country, mm. uh, but communism is like no, countries don't really matter. Mm. Actually, Stalin changed that later on, but 
still today, like it is a very evangelical kind of uh, ideology. But the umbrella political ideology for China, at least in theory, would be communism, wouldn't it? Because they're the Chinese Communist Party, yet they're not actually following the doctrines of communism fully. Yeah, China... Sorry. Just real quickly, similarly with America, which is supposedly the home of capitalism, it's not, you know, both of these countries, I'm not a political scientist by any means, but they have some sort of a hybrid. It's not a fully capitalist country, America, nor is China a fully communist Yeah, but I would say that China is more communist than the US in present day scenario. So China is actually... Look, communism is dead. Like people that still say that, you know, that uh, 20th century communism is a valid model for any society are 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 kind of ridiculous because we did experiment with it and it failed mm. quite miserably. So that version of communism is dead. And China sort of recognized that around the 80s. But what they didn't do was, which, for example, Russia or Eastern Europe did, was that, okay, if communism was wrong, then obviously the adversary must have been right. And clearly, you look at the U.S.'s economic progress... Uh, and the Western world. So it seems to be a good model for us to adopt. China didn't do that. They came up with their own hybrid version of capitalism, which essentially, you could you could say that it's state capitalism, whereas mm. that... What is that exactly? Because I've heard that it's there are some free market principles that they adhere to, but ultimately the state wields the power over the markets. What is it exactly? Th- that's true. So look... The idea, the central idea of communism was uh, the destruction of market as a principle. We can go into the nitty gritties of it, but I'll, I'll sum it up really quickly. So Marxist ideas stem from the idea of commodity. Mm-hmm. Commodity has essentially three components, according to Marx. Uh, Marx, use, use value, and exchange value. So use value, if we're looking at like, I don't know, let's say this cup of tea. So the use of it is that I'm able to drink from it, um, whatever I might be able to use it for. The use value is the sort of nourishment it gives me, so it's hard to quantify. And the exchange value, which is how much would I be able to sell this? Sure. So Marx's idea essentially was that use and use value is great. Exchange value is where problems begin. So uh, let's say you're a wheat grower in Australia and um, you produce wheat and let's say there aren't enough buyers in the market. Technically, there's buyers, like you could export it to like uh, a a malnourished African country and they would take it, but they wouldn't do it because they wouldn't be able to uh, give them the exchange value that wheat has. So essentially, Marx was like, the exchange value is where the problem's at. So we need to get rid of the exchange value in a very simplistic nutshell. So communism essentially was that you destroy the markets. The markets are where the problem is. You base everything that you consume on the need for it to be consumed. And that was the model that really failed. It caused a lot of problems in Russia and in China, like all those starvation all that stuff kind of comes from that because you would have these uh, little villages that would be producing stuff based on what they needed but then the government would come in and say actually stop producing rice and start producing chairs 
because we're there's a deficit of chairs that we need in this country. So that would cause a lot of problems because a lot of this is sort of organic. Um, so China went through that. They realized that that strategy is wrong. But at the same time, they believe that the criticisms are still valid, as in the the the, the problems with markets and exchange value and inequality is that's not going away anywhere. So they basically started to guide markets in a much more forceful way than the U.S. does. You could argue that every country is not completely capitalist, even the U.S., which mm. is supposed to be the, the heaven for capitalism, is like they have socialist policies. Of course, But yep. China did it in a much more authoritative manner, where literally the Politburo decides where economic spending needs to go, and and puts a lot of their weight behind it and also coerces capitalists within their country to toe the line. Hmm. And uh, they've been rather successful in this model too, which is something that's hard for us to acknowledge because it's their model is so diametrically opposite to what we believe in. Hmm. But they lifted close to 600, 700 million out of uh, poverty in a matter of, two or three, three, three decades. That's unheard of. So uh, those are the two sort of competing models at the moment. So if someone is still saying that, no, communism is the way to like Lenin-style Russian communism, they're living in a different world that no one really believes in anymore. So is the app term for uh, the economic governance model of China at the moment state capitalism? Is that what yes, we could describe it as? state-guided capitalism. Hmm. Uh, they, they were lucky enough to have a leader, Deng Xiaoping, hmm. right after Mao, who essentially was the architect of their model now. He, he reintroduced markets, but with strict control of, um, from the government. And they've been... They've been and, and usually we sort of, you know, when we think of state capitalism or bu- uh, bureaucrats making those decisions, our concept, like, it's going to be really inefficient. And it almost always is. Like, people, centralized governments don't really know how things... Like, I remember this one anecdote that a Russian diplomat once said that just when uh, the, the, the Soviet Union was about to dissolve, Gorbachev sent a delegation to Britain to understand how their economic model works so that we can implement it in, in Russia. And one of the first things that uh, the Russian diplomat asked his British counterpart was, how do you manage uh, bread? How do you ensure that bread gets distributed evenly and everyone has enough food to eat? And the British uh, British diplomat responded, we don't. We just let community decide how much they want. Mm. And that was, as sort of basic as that sounds, was pretty uh, mind-boggling for this Russian diplomat. Mm. Uh, but essentially, Chinese... Wait, sorry, what was the question again? Well, I was just wondering the way that... What, what you could actually describe the Chinese economic model and state capitalism sounds like. This is what people generally call it. Yeah, so it's it's basically this maintaining a capitalist environment, but with yeah. strict controls from uh, a bureau, strict bureaucratic control. Sorry, my point was that usually bureau, bureaucracies making economic decisions are horrible at it, hmm. except for China for some reason. You, you can go into like a debate of how they're able to do it, but they do it really well. Interesting. And I don't think any other society has ever has been able to do it in the way they have. Someone told me recently that to 
become a government official in China, you just have to be the smartest in your cohort in school. Yeah. So it's the smartest people that are controlling this economy. Maybe there's something to that. It's 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 actually incredible how they do it. So their entire bureaucracy is recruited by even at the lower levels by mm. the Politburo, like uh, an organization which is only answerable to the Politburo, so like the cabinet, mm. and they purposely choose people that aren't from the capitalist class, so poor really? people uh, and people from rural areas that are super smart. And they recruit them. And you know the idea what, that... What's the theory behind that? Well, they believe in meritocracy and also they want to keep control of the markets. They don't want capitalists seeping in and trying to change the system. Interesting. So they want to, the Communist Party wants to keep like very authoritative control and they feel that if they get like rich kids to come in, they're going to start talking about other stuff. In fact, that actually happened. There was uh, this current president of China, Xi Jinping... Mm. He had to like go through almost a civil war within the Communist Party where there was a faction that was arguing for a more Korean model. And they okay. were kind of from the capitalist class. And he quite, he restricted them and he kind of kicked them out of the party wow. based on like corruption charges and stuff. And so now he's taken over. So it's still the same system. Uh, and they recruit from like... Um, I've just very briefly, I've heard that it's actually become even even more authoritarian over the last... 10, 15 years, there was a burgeoning art scene there in the 90s and the early 2000s that were attracting a lot of Westerners to China. But since Xi Jinping has taken control, he's cracked down on a lot of that. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. But I don't think it's particularly just Xi Jinping. It's generally the the Chinese um, economic model has sort of morphed post-2015 a little bit. So from the 80s and 90s, what they what they were doing was producing as many things as possible and exporting it to the rest of the markets. Yeah. And so they were trying for basically the entire world to kind of like them, accept them into the global economic arena. And uh, and in recent times, like since 2014, they've sort of changed that model. They don't that model entailed like a 10, 12 percent GDP growth every year. And they purposely made that into a, almost like a 6-7%, which is now. Because what they were afraid of is that China would become too dependent on other markets. So the only way I can sell stuff is if you buy it from me, right? Mm. So what they wanted to do was uh, they wanted to make their society more Chinese consumption-based. That even if no one else buys stuff from us, we will be able to buy it from us. And that sort of meant a little bit of an uh, isolation in a way that you almost sort of cut your ties, uh, a more protectionist policy. You make sure that Chinese produced stuff is bought by Chinese as opposed to, you know, the free market deciding, um, you know, whatever the cheapest stuff is. Like we currently live in a like in Australia, if we're we're not going to buy something just based on the fact that it's Australian we're going to buy it based on the fact like how cheap it is mm. how good it is and if i don't know new zealand produces better stuff then we'll buy it from them mm. uh, and covid's really brought that sort of situation to the fore hasn't it because the supply chains in many western societies were brought to the brink yeah, when supply the lockdown chains occurred that too but i don't know if it has to the same level most of it is not covid based but most of it is like geopolitical based like we have an issue when a lot of our stuff is being produced in china 
but we wouldn't have that same issue if it was being produced in the UK. Yeah. Even though supply chains were disrupted in both areas. So I, I personally, this is my opinion, I don't think it's a COVID uh, thing. It's more like China reasserting its position in the world and the rest of us going, that scares me. I'm going to be less dependent on you. Mm. And because they were producing most of the stuff in general, it, it took we like the world's taken a big hit from it. They're like the deeply insecure kid that's just proving that they, they, they so desperately want to be liked and accepted by everyone in the world. But China, by controlling everything within their country, that's what's turning other countries yeah. away from them. But they've always been kind of like that, to be honest. Hmm. That's just... Uh, well, what do they call the 1800s? The century of humiliation, don't yeah, they? the age of humiliation. Mm. And that from, says something about the sentiment of uh, just the average Chinese person. They're so desperate to prove that we are a global superpower and they'll do anything to achieve that. That's true. But if you, for a second, if you put yourself in their shoes, it makes sense. Because China was always the global superpower. Since, I don't know, recorded history, they had the biggest empire. They produced the most amount of stuff, which was a good barometer for judging. Because they were the richest. They were selling in India at number two. And essentially, with around uh, colonization and, uh, and the Industrial Revolution, for the first time in history, they were very poor and were roughed up around mm. by... They had these opium wars, which was essentially UK trying to sell them opium and them not wanting it, and then the UK beating them up so that they continue to buy it. And Japan invaded them a few times. Japan invaded them as well. Japan was. I was. I remember reading this. Um, this uh, Korean. They're like the school shooter of the world. <laughs> like we're gonna get our revenge. <laughs> they, uh, dude. To be fair, Japan was saying that when they invaded China as well, that we're going to get our revenge. But China was like, it was always in a privileged position, particularly in East Asia. Like you could only have a Chinese emperor. If you were Korean, you could have a king. And mm. in fact, when you chose who the king was, the king or a delegation had to go to China to get their approval. And right. so China has always been in that like really privileged position. Funnily enough, they ha also had like a relatively, you know, in Europe, you had this idea that everyone's equal. Like all these countries like Germany, France, England, we're all equal. We're all sovereign. But in reality, Germany was a lot more stronger than Czechoslovakia. Hmm. But on paper, they were equal. And so they kind of constantly fought wars with each other because Czechoslovakia acted like it was equal but it really wasn't. And Germany and Britain wanted to tell them who's boss. In China, overtly, they had a hierarchy. Yeah. And with China was supreme. But in reality, and this is again my opinion, in reality, when a Korean delegation went to say, uh, we want to get this guy as our king, China would never really object because they were like, I don't care who your king is, as long as you know I'm the emperor. Mm. That's all that matters to us. So relatively, they had a more stable and peaceful era compared to Europe. So it really depends on how you kind of... And I think that's part of their culture too. They are... In, in Australia and the West, we, we think equality is very important. Even I do. Like, I think it's... I don't know if I'd be able to live in a place where, you know, there was an explicit hierarchy. But, uh, but Chinese are cool with it. Mm. At least a significant amount of Chinese are cool with it. So I don't know. It really depends on how you look at it. Mm. So, if I was a Chinese leader, 
and someone described that era as age of humiliation, I wouldn't disagree with them. Yeah, well, they've really got the monkey on their back. They're trying <laughs> to prove all sorts of things, aren't they? Um, coming back to their model of capitalism, state, state-run capitalism, state capitalism, whatever you want to call it, could you theoretically say that the reason it potentially the reason it's been so successful is that with that state control it's able to take the advantages of a capitalistic system with its wealth generating machine and its ability to force corporations to be as efficient as possible without all the i suppose cultural and social consequences of unfettered capitalism where consumer driven emotional choices run the country mm. They would, they would say that at least. But what they, oh, if you try to do that with any other country, I don't think it would work. Because they, their state machinery runs like a corporation. They are as efficient as any multinational corporation would be. If you can achieve that, then it would work. Otherwise, if you try to do it with like, I don't know, if you decide that our Australian bureaucracy is going to make all economic decisions, I think they'll make some pretty shit decisions. Mm. Uh, because they don't work like they're not as razor sharp as their their uh, bureaucratic machinery is well the best and brightest are incentivized to be part of that state machinery whereas here in australia i don't think at least the best yeah. and brightest are getting into politics you ask the average guy what are the advantages of being working in the government they'll say it's a cushy job you know there's the benefits are great and you don't have to do much that's not what these guys that's not what like the chinese bureaucracy likes to think of themselves as like this is a cushy job they like to think of themselves as any other corporation with a lot of power and making even bigger decisions uh the uh, and their system works differently too to ensure that some of the 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 bad ones eventually by bad i mean the ones that aren't smart or aren't good at their job like mm. the idea that like president barack obama uh graduates from uni teaches law does community organizing, becomes a senator, and within a few years becomes a president, it's completely impossible in China. You can't have that kind of a movement over there. Anyone that becomes president of China has managed hundreds of millions of people before. They, they usually, so if someone, they usually make them premiers of states, okay. and once they're a premier of a state, it's not just from what state they're in, they send them to every other state, small, as smaller to bigger to the point where someone who's become a president has managed more people than the entire Europe combined. Mm. So, and if you're bad at it, you get kicked out really easily. The other thing that China does is they have a lot of, uh, one of the biggest industries in China is polling, which is which sounds weird. Polling, as in? Yeah, uh, polling as in like, you know, getting people to like answer yeah. questionnaires and wow. stuff. okay. And they use all of that data to judge bureaucrats that they send to different places so they'll be right. like okay let's say rank on one to ten how clean your street is or what needs improvement or whatever then they'll get those metrics they'll tell the bureaucrats that these are your targets the average score was let's say six it needs to be eight in two mm. years or you're gone so you like it's it's a very difficult job Mm. But only the best end up meeting those incredibly difficult targets, a bit like a corporation, you mm. know, in 
they give you these insane targets of like let's say like some bank was like you need to get this amount of loans and for most people it'd be like it's too much pressure i can't do this but like some of them would be able to hmm. and those are the people that end up in like the big jobs well in theory the uh officials in australia or, or america or whatever western country it may be they have the pressure of the upcoming election yes which these guys do not mm. that's a big advantage you're right actually most like you know they're they, they i think this is their 40th five-year plan every five years they come up with a five-year plan and it's been going on for so many years now in australia you can't have a three-year plan because you don't know what the next government is going to be like or what the public opinion is going to be in a few years yeah that's a huge disadvantage you can't plan long term that's true because if you were to plan for something 30 years into the future that may take 10 years of harsher a harsher environment of some sort or living below your means for 10 years yeah to then um see those rewards in 30 years time and also not have a say meanwhile like, yeah they don't care what you think they care about like a really long-term mm. perspective of what you think but, like, I remember there was this one... Uh, There's no concept of delayed gratification in Western politics, yeah. is there? Which is which is tough. But you know what? I still... Just because I say all this stuff about China does not mean that we should be doing that. Because I think our culture is not conducive to it. We'll have too many protests and revolts if we try to do something like that. So it's good for them, but not necessarily that good for us. Uh, I mm. remember the... Economic models really do need to work hand in hand with the culture of a given state. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, there's no other way to do it. Like, you can't, you can't, like, this, which is the problem. Like, a lot of people say, like, okay, the American model's good, so we should follow that. Or, I don't know, the Chinese model's good, or the old British model's good. Like, they might be good, but would they work in your society is a question. Um, like, for instance, this extreme, yeah, like I said, these extreme authoritative model would not work in a Western society because... For centuries, we've grown up with this idea of equality. It really matters to us. It goes to the core of us, not necessarily for Chinese. So mm. we have to work within this system. And it's a pretty good system. Eh? Like the Western world is not, it, it's, it's sort of declining a little bit, but it's pretty sick as well. So we can work around it. Mm. We just might need to tweak a few things here and there. But the problem is like, sometimes the problem is too many stakeholders. Uh, one of the uh, governors of California was asked, uh, he had a project of uh, building a high-speed rail from L.A. to San Francisco, and he was asked, how is that going? And he was like, that was actually my father's plan, who was also the governor of California. And he was like, okay, so what's the progress on that? He's like, well, the progress is I've got 570 cases at the moment, and there's not a single brick that's been laid. Too many stakeholders end up coming, and it's a... I think one of the other terms used for Western democracies is vitocracy. And when he's talking about cases, is he... Well, like uh, court cases. Yeah, right. So people who might own the land where that railway is going to be, who are suing the government. Yeah. Or, yeah. or other different stakeholders, like mm. the automobile sector saying like, hey, this does not work in our favor. This mm. is going to jeopardize. Too many people coming in and hold... In China, it doesn't matter. There's no sense of uh, for the country in Western societies, at least um, not anymore. Yeah. Look, I suppose the whole for the country argument is really relative. Like, you might think something's good for the country, which I might think it's not good for the country. Sure. But at some point in the Chinese model, they can say, I don't care. Mm. 
But in our model, we can't say that. In theory, a sort of capitalistic, self-interested society would say that even if you are acting in your self-interest, that is to the advantage of everyone else in the country because you are then contributing to this this engine of capitalism or neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it, by continually increasing the efficiency, putting pressure on corporations all the time on a mass scale when millions of people are doing that. So in theory, even if you are working towards your self-interest, you're actually benefiting everyone overall. Yeah, and and a lot of times that can be true, but sometimes that is not necessarily true. I agree. Yeah. I think there's a limit to that. Yeah, there is a limit to that. But we've got to work within our within our restrictions. You know, everyone has their restrictions. That's true. Um, so we've just got to... There's a way out of it without being super authoritarian. Um, you just set some new rules. And those rules can be accepted by mm. different people. Like, one of the, the sort of best times for, I guess, Western democracy was around the post-war period. And uh, after the nineteen after nineteen forty five, the U.S. government, which was then headed by FDR, mm. sort of came up with this Bretton Woods system, which was this global uh, economic model of how we're going to conduct um, uh, commerce between different countries, and it came from self interest. So I remember, like during World War, during the Second World War, uh, Europe was was hemorrhaging money because they were fighting these wars but the u.s was booming because they were supplying most of the stuff that was going out and just at the latter end of the second world war what they realized was all of those factories that are producing bullets guns tanks if we tomorrow change that to create vacuum cleaners refrigerators in a post-war period there's not enough demand in the world to be able to buy all of this stuff. So what they decided was, then if we don't have that demand in the rest of the world, then we give them money to create that demand. So they started injecting a lot of money in Europe. So think about the fact that like they were just fought a war with Japan and Germany, mm. and right after the war they were giving them money to like reestablish their, fa- their economies just because they wanted them to be able to buy all of their stuff. And that was a really good... Really? Yeah, it was a really good model. It worked up until the 70s, really. Um, it was only until... There's, so what happened was in the 70s... Um, U.S. before that was a surplus country. They were creating a lot more stuff and people were buying it in different countries. By the 70s, you had Germany, U.K., Japan, and later China that were now surplus countries. They were producing more stuff than the U.S. was. And so U.S. became a deficit country, which was difficult for them to manage because their entire economy was centered around the idea that they're surplus because they were giving money to these other countries. Yeah. In different ways, like pegging the U.S. dollar to different currencies, just so their currency has more stability. Um, and in the 70s, around Nixon's time, that changed, and they realized that we need to change a few things around. And that's where, actually, they, they made some wrong decisions. So they basically made U.S. into a casino. They realized that, okay, we don't have a lot of surplus of our own. All these other countries have surpluses. Mm-hmm. We can just recycle their surplus which basically was when Wall Street was unleashed. Because Wall Street was this massive casino in a way, where if you were creating, if you were making a lot of money in Germany, hmm. the best way for you to uh, invest that money was to s- send it to Wall Street. And so 
and that would multi keep multiplying. So the U.S. started taking every other country's surplus and recycling it in, all, in their own country. But the problem was that, that that's not sustainable mm. because casinos aren't the best economic model, you know, like, and so that's when the decline started. But what I'm trying to say is like, the between after the Second World War until like almost this is 1975, it was an amazing system that we lived in and we created it because we just made some rules. Uh, U.S. spearheaded it, but we we supported it and it was sick. We can do that again. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. It, Interesting. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's all very the the twentieth century from my very uh you know. Not nowhere near as educated um, perspective. Everything seemed to have an ebb and flow. You had the roaring 20s of excess and then the depression and then there was a war and then there was that huge rebuilding phase with a little bit more of, I suppose, a democratic socialist kind of outlook. And then there was a reaction to that which looked to be Reaganomics and neoliberalism and Thatcherism in, in the UK and... Well, it's almost still still that to a degree. Yeah, it We're hasn't still, really changed. It's at the it's at its last leg now. Yeah, uh, something's got to give. Two thousand and eight really changed. That yeah, because two thousand and eight was when basically everyone realized that that's not a sustainable way of doing it. This deregulation of uh, Thatcher and and Reagan, um, I guess our version of what would be Paul Keating. Um, it, at some point, it led to this... Because all of this, this this Wall Street recycling money and this financialization of the industry meant that it was susceptible to uh, to recessions and really, really big recessions Yeah, that would make the world economy um, hemorrhage money. So now... I, but, but one of the good things that we have now experienced... Or when I say we, I mean the West has now experienced is that We've moved towards like um, this this tech age, which is this almost post-capitalist feudal tech age that we now live in. Uh, companies like Google own; they're gonna they're monopolizing technology, and most of our future economic growth will come from uh, these these very sophisticated uh, uh, technical capabilities. Um, particularly once we move more into AI. And what are the social costs of that when there are going to be mass job losses across yeah. many industries, even just this decade? Yeah. Looking at industries like, well, when, we, when you have self-driving cars and trucks, a huge proportion of the American workforce is in that industry. And these are usually working class people. And what do they do? Yeah, that's a Teach tough one. Teach them to code. What is it? What's that stupid thing they were saying online? Um, learn to code. Yeah, I don't know if they'll you, you be able to do that. that, that that's so silly. You can't tell a 50-year-old truckie. You can't just suddenly teach them how to code. You know, it doesn't they, work that way. That would not work. But, you know, that's an existential problem for the uh, these big tech companies too. Because, like, imagine there's a factory that produces iPhones. Mm. And there's a bunch of people that work in that factory. Tomorrow, we lay off all of those people, and now robots are building those iPhones. That solves your supply issue, but then it creates a demand. Who's going to buy those iPhones? Yeah. So then you've got this problem of uh, diminishing aggregate demand, 
which is an existential problem for these tech companies too. So that's why we've got these ideas like uh, universal basic income mm. and to be... What do you think of that? I, I mean, look... I think it's good in theory. It's a, it's a pat... Almost do something like a universal basic wealth rather than an income. Yeah. So rather than superannuation at the end of your career, you, you get a lump sum maybe after you... Even when you're 18 or 20, 21, maybe there's even a one or two year national service... Not necessarily military national service, but some sort of service for the country. So that, however they do that, the government can still instill within a given populace, hey, there is some value to the common good of this country. And then after that, it's on you. You can be as self-interested as you want. And you have this lump sum of universal basic wealth and the dividends of that work as your universal basic income. Yeah, I think that's... Uh, that's a, a plausible avenue that we can take. There, these are uncharted territories because we don't have an example, That's but true. there's a whole host of stuff. I I remember reading this one theory, which was coined by um, the ex-finance minister of Greece, Yanis Varoufakis, hmm. who uh, was an economist. And so he, what he was arguing is that every time you seek employment in any corporation, right now it's based on whatever your your salary He's saying that it should be based on um, shares. So when you join a company, you have a certain amount of shares that you get, and that gives you dividend in terms of your salary. Mm. So you're incentivized to do well for the for the the corporation. And also, well, this is the other aspect which is controversial about him. He's like, and the corporations are owned publicly. So getting rid of this okay. uh, private uh, ownership of a lot of this stuff is his idea of how we can do, deal with it, which becomes more plausible now because we are moving towards like a tech feudal society. So we're mm. moving away from capitalism. And when, you're, when there's a bunch of feudals owning most of the stuff, then it's easy to take control of that. I mean, in theory, those tech giants are still publicly traded companies so they're owned by the millions of shareholders but the problem with that is when you're a when you have a couple of thousand dollars of shares in facebook or google you don't actually have any say in how the companies run yeah you've got to get enough shares and when you look at the people that have that are able to make those decisions they outnumber the little guys by a huge margin mm. so it is still owned by a select bunch of people that are making those shots. Uh, I don't know. This comes from Yanis's theory again, but his his justification for essentially, in a way, taking those over is that um, if you open like an iPhone or something today, and every piece of technology within an iPhone is uh, comes from some kind of a public grant, so it was at some usually comes from defense. So defense invests money into getting technologies, I don't know, for like a better, better missile defense system. And one of the byproducts of it is that we figure out how to make like a good microchip or something. Mm. So it's publicly funded and privately expropriated, if that's the term. Um, so you can essentially, this is the steel, the commie still coming out. But, uh, but it makes sense. And... The other thing that we can learn from China just on this particular thing is that sometimes it's really inefficient for these small select group of people to have a lot of money 
because it's not being invested in areas that we would want it to be invested in collectively. So U.S. could be making, I don't know, trillions of dollars from their tech industry, but they still don't have any money to like, uh, I don't know, build more solar panels for certain areas because it's just the market of that is not allowing them to move. Now it's changing, but we still need a lot more investment into this, this green. So what you can essentially do is take some of their money and invest it in areas that you think need it. And that's kind of the Chinese model. They do shit like that. They take money from their billionaires and they put it in areas what they think is uh, is appropriate and what the economy needs. Hmm. So it's it's a difficult it's difficult, but like the whole AI question, it I guess it has to be dealt with at some point. We're going to move into some direction, anyways. I'm just hoping it's not the the Matrix version of it, you know. Everyone's hoping that. Yeah. Well, that's why Elon did the Neuralink, didn't he? Because he thought at least yeah. this is one way to. What do you think about to that? ensure? I don't look. I don't know a lot about it, but in theory, it it makes some sense. Uh, if you're actually implanting the technology within the human, then it can't get out of control and destroy us. <laughs> yeah. It, it becomes us. I don't okay, know. Okay, let's say, let's say, I hope this doesn't happen, but let's yeah. say like uh, your hand gets chopped off in an accident. Mm-hmm. and Or like not chopped off, like it's not working. And they say, you know, if you install this Neuralink, you should be able to grab some stuff. Would you do it? Yeah, why wouldn't you? Well, then the the concern is that you there's a chip inside of your sure. brain that could control you. So it you might think you want something, but mm. it's basically being told by someone else like you should want this. True. I suppose if you if, if you've lost your arm, I don't know what other options you'd have. You might just have to live with that. Plenty of people do. I don't know. I'd have to wait. You'd, you'd have to do a lot more research into it. I think like with any technology, there will be immense positives that come out of it and also huge consequences that we're not yet aware of. Some of the consequences are scary, man. There's this um, Israeli author, uh, Yuval Hariri. Oh, yeah, I love him. He's sick, right? He was talking about this, uh, the, uh, like, you know, Audible, the ones, the the e-book. Uh, no, not Audible. Like when you basically read an e-book there's technology that can monitor your facial expressions while you're reading something to the thing. Like it, it knows what you like so that it can recommend you stuff like that. So you'd be reading through a paragraph and you're like, this paragraph is sick. And then the, the your machine, whatever you, uh, the, your iPad knows, Oh shit, this, this guy likes this. So I'm going to s- give him more of this. Wow. So it kind of knows a lot more about you than you even know about yourself. And the concern is then it can, guide you towards certain things like make certain political decisions of like who to vote for but that's like a really basic version of it yeah i mean even when you're having a if we're having a conversation where we've been talking about china then uh you may get an ad for some sort of book on china because the phone has that technology where it's listening to your conversation and it's hearing certain buzzwords and then advertising to you based on what you've spoken about in private now the phone companies say that that's just coded data and it could never pro- be used or sold to any a- anyone or any entity. But one day that could be. Yeah. It and could it probably be. will be. So nothing will ever be private ever again. 
Yeah. Everything's being recorded. Everything's being used against you to sell to you. And the social networks, that's just another perfect example. Immense good. I wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for Facebook and, and YouTube and this incredible technology that's come about in the last two decades. But it has decimated the mental health of Gen Z. <laughs> And everyone else, for that matter. I get that stupid thing on my... I've got, like, an app that tells me how much screen time. It's ridiculous. Like, dude, I'm going to be honest. I get, like, four hours a day. That's normal, though. That's actually nothing to be embarrassed about. I get more than that. Well, I mean, it's my job, and I do a lot of editing on, on even on my phone now. But four hours is quite normal, I'd say. Well... If it's more than that, that's even more troubling because you're living in... That's the Matrix model. That's like... We are in the Matrix then. We are in the freaking Matrix. That That is scary. Mm. To the point where like, okay, talk about UBI and like people wanting stuff. Like if most people can be pacified, like you don't need them, then you can just, I don't know, put them into some computer program where they're having fun, riding rainbows and stuff, not knowing what's happening around them. That We're moving towards that. That could be a possibility. Hmm. And all it takes is some nefarious actor with enough power and influence to control the population so easily. But you know what? This is something that, funnily enough, Elon Musk has also talked about, and I agree with him. So we can't control this, right? We don't know how, what the world's going to be like. No. But we can create certain conditions where it becomes less likely that we move into that dystopic world. For sure. So like Google, for instance, is buying up most technologies alphabet the the parent company is buying up most of these technologies and if we concentrate all of this power in very few hands then it becomes more likely that someone can make those decisions as opposed to a lot of people having technologies Mm. because then it's anarchic so it would be very difficult to control and make these kinds of uh these kinds of decisions so one of the things that i advocate for is that not to monopolize technology, distribute it in different places. Like Facebook, when it acquired Instagram, I think it acquired like 75% of the entire market. That's a ridiculous amount of people to Mm. be controlled by one organization. What does that look like when politicians and and, and yourself talk about either breaking up tech companies or... um, sharing the ownership of those companies how do you actually do that if 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 you try to share google among however many people it may be do you just distribute shares evenly or do you distribute it to the employees what does that actually look like well i think the at least what i can see for which can be easily done is that say facebook you can't buy instagram sorry you've got Okay. Too, you you get too much power. This this and we've got those uh, like we have laws uh, where you can't monopolize the entire market. So you can start off there. That no, Instagram cannot be bought by Facebook. Uh, there can be other companies that would be able to buy it. That's the best. You can't haphazardly distributing shares amongst random companies would probably not be a good decision. Hmm. But you can stop like you can stop Bezos from becoming a trillionaire. Like, I'm not saying you now, have to through be poor. Tax, taxation or how, how would we, if he's going to become the first trillionaire, yeah. what specific policies do you put in place to ensure that doesn't happen? 
Well, for one, like, you know, Bezos has his own version of becoming a trillionaire because, like, let's admit it, he's very good at this capitalist game. Like, he knows... Amazon's a great service. I'm not going and, and, to... You get and it delivered gotta, that day. You've got to acknowledge it. I remember Bill Maher made this point where he was like, yeah, you've won the game. Congratulations. Here's your certificate. But now we're not going to let you do this anymore. Mm. So almost forcefully restricting them. That, okay, you can take over the market, but we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put laws, legislation, that will mean that you can't. Sorry. There's got to be someone else that will have to take this over. And you can probably double your profit, but you can't. So not necessarily with taxation, though, but with restricting them. Okay. Are you then missing out on what is ostensibly an incredible intellect and capacity to increase efficiency and to lower costs and prices for the average consumer, which I know is the neoliberal theory, which has a lot of consequences associated with that. But is there a way to manipulate his genius and still be able to utilize that? And I'm sure the reason he was doing that is for the reward of the the power and the riches that come with it. But is is there a way to uh, mitigate against him monopolizing uh, all of that power while still getting the best out of what is clearly a brilliant mind. Look, this is a debatable point, but I think he's, you can. Like, he's not the only genius out there. Mm-hmm. And even if, if, if we say that we want to, like, let this genius exercise as much of his intellectual capability as possible, we don't, we don't have to do it. Like, we can live with a slightly less intellectual world, you know? Like... At what cost is the question? Mm. Okay, so the whatever economic gains may be made in having Bezos continually monopolize power is not worth the uh, the power itself that he will yeah. attain and the consequences that will come with just that one man having that kind of immense power. And also, here's something that we should remember. We're democratic, so the power essentially in our system comes from the people Mm. right so democratically if we make that decision that bezos cannot have that kind of power i think that's fair play where would you cap it would you would you say once you've achieved a wealth of a billion dollars you then you can't achieve any more what what is the cutoff point i think the, the the wealth aspect is arbitrary because like you know a million dollars meant a lot more like 40 years ago than it means today. So if you set like a 1 billion amount, that I don't think that's necessarily going to work because mm. um, there's a whole other factors that play into it. But what you can do is, uh, is block market share. That market share, value of that market share will grow or not grow, whatever it may be. But you block that level of market share, that... Um, if Amazon is buying up and killing every retail outlet around your area, we say no. Okay, Amazon, you have to pay an addition. You have to pay an additional tax on this, mm. because you are not employing nearly as many people as the entire retail industry is. In fact, your number of employees are lowering because you're in- involving more techno- technology and robots into this. So, you pay extra money. It's a. It- it sucks for you, but sorry, mm. we have to do it. So when you go on like Amazon to buy like, I don't know, whatever you buy, like a mug or something, and it's like $2 and you go to your local store and that's $5, you're 
make that Amazon cup $10 so that there's an incentive for you to go out and pay someone in real person, a family that might be depending on that income. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's the only kind of way you can really do it. But I don't know. Mm. We'll have to see how it goes. But what I do know is like monopolies are bad <laughs> and yeah. we should try and avoid them as much as possible. Mm-hmm. I definitely, I, I can see the the uh, ramifications of having that sort of a tech oligopoly making so much of the decisions for us, even if they're doing that indirectly through, uh, you know, corrupt politicians or whatever it may be. I'm just also cautious about any potential solutions because who knows what the ramifications of those may be. But it is getting to a point where something has got to give as well. That's true. And that's a fine... Because you're right. Look, I... The, people come up... People that come up with solutions also make gulags and shit. So there's that aspect of it. It could go badly. But you just got to make calculated risks. And mm. the best way to avoid that is by doing it democratically. Like, if you can convince most amount of people in your country that this is a good move, as as sort of ideological as that sounds, it most probably will be. Like, the, you need, the more minds you have thinking of a solution will lead to a better result. Definitely. The problem is the tech co- corporations control so much of the flow of information. That's true. That's so true. to gotta, get your message out there, you have to play ball with them. You got to go in early. Yeah. Before it becomes too dystopic. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think there there is any any credence to just continuing the same system, but having a different corporation come in and compete with said corporation? So something like Parler, which is meant to be the conservative version of Twitter. Yeah. It's at least taking away some of that power from Twitter because now not everyone is just on Twitter and Twitter can't just arbitrarily dictate whoever they want to be banned and whatever they deem as hate speech. There's now a substantial competitor. Look, principally, I think that's a good thing. I, uh, leaving aside some of the social aspects of it, you know, like, oh, uh, Parler is a, a breeding ground for neo-Nazis. I'm not looking sure, at yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. aspect of it right now, but just as an idea that it's a competitive uh, com- competition to Twitter, that's a good thing. Mm. That was the OG capitalism that you have. You're free. You've got like multiple vendors and you choose what, what's good. Mm. So I think government should actively encourage competition. And if it comes to it where like someone like, like a Bezos like model where like just the sheer brilliance of their system is eating up everything, then you reduce their brilliance a little bit. Okay. You, you make them slightly handicapped. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So Paula, I think is good. It is, is it even like, I don't How know what big is it? it? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I know uh, the, the notable American conservatives are all on there. Although I think it was... The funny thing is with, with Parler, uh, Apple and Google took it off their app stores. So they really... Ha- they're the emperors. Yeah, they don't want competition, of Exactly. Course. They'll resist it, but you have to make them do it. But what about that one that Donald Trump was coming out with? Didn't he say that I'm going to come up with my own uh, social media? It's going to be great. (laughs) He said that that for years and isn't that nothing's happened. Uh, I was hoping that'd be pretty cool, but obviously 
I suppose just getting the capital together for a, a major social media company like that is even for someone like Trump wouldn't be an easy task. Yeah, and let's admit it, he's not the most sound mind out there. No, <laughs> no, there'd be someone behind the he'd just be voicing the ideas and there'd be someone behind the scenes doing everything. Yeah. Look, yeah, I think I think that's good. Multiple social media platforms are definitely a good thing. Mm. Um I mean, it's sort well, no, the platforms are all pretty consistent, but I mean, take something like journalism or just the media. Now, with the advent of social media, media itself and the flow of information has actually moved away from a more monop- monopolistic style to a highly competitive, more pure competition style because there are just millions of people with youtube channels with yeah. twitter accounts with blogs with facebook pages whatever it may be and yeah uh, you know infinitely more than what they ever infinitely more information sources than what they were previously so that's one example of people then being able to choose between all the different vendors and not being stuck with these five channels that's true however all owned by so, like, you can go to a shopping mall and there's million stores, mm. but then who owns the shopping mall? Like Westfield, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or and, whoever. and like, yeah. so in this scenario, like Facebook, Facebook, they own yes. the they own the market. Yeah, it is the Facebook market, isn't it? Yeah. Was the YouTube is the marketplace. Hmm. So that's the issue. It's mm. not necessarily if there are five stores or ten stores within the shopping mall or like YouTube, but like who controls the entire marketplace mm. because traditionally our capitalist system was that you know the market's free no one owns it mm. not even the government so and then you have these like you've got you can put up your shop and then if you're good then you succeed but in this scenario that's why it's like a rental feudal uh, system now where yeah you might have whatever you can put in whatever stuff you want but like your landlord is still that one company mm. and that company is borderless. It's not just one country. It's most countries in the world. Mm. So that's actually the problem. Uh, that's, I think, is a major problem. And you need it because without the the market, you, you can't put yourself out there. You can't survive. So it's hard to criticize it. Okay, that brings us to the end of part one with special guest Ali on the Neil and Jordan podcast. I hope by the time you're listening to this, the Blues have absolutely dominated Queensland once again. We'll be back next week with part two, continuing our conversation about social media. And I'll be back with Jordan in two weeks. Thanks for listening, guys.